What's going on, everybody? Small business owners, side hustlers, funding CEOs, and partners everywhere. Welcome to today's episode. Today's episode, boys and girls, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to be a fun one. We're going to be diving into some of the top financial misconceptions, misunderstandings out there around in our country, and especially for business owners and consumers. And it's going to be according to what our friends at ChatGPT have to say. Welcome to the Go Figure podcast created for parents and business owners who want to get their money right. My name's Leo Cannell. As a husband and father of five, I've been fortunate to create two eight-figure businesses in the fintech space. This podcast will share the values, principles, strategies, tools, and tactics that have helped us to build a fintech empire and provide an epic life for our family. Having been a parent and entrepreneur for 20 years, there's a lot I don't know. There's been a lot of failure. The good news is together, we'll find solutions to creating an epic life powered by a business that we love. If you haven't uh, set up your account at ChatGPT, you can now get the ChatGPT Premium Plus version. I think it's uh, $20 a month. So I signed up for that, and one of the good things about it is you're down a lot less. In fact, I don't think I've ever been down since I uh, got the Plus subscription version. So it's kind of like what Twitter's doing, where they have the little uh, blue uh, checkmark thing. In fact, I think I need to go through and uh, uh, jump through some hoops on that to complete my verification process so I can be a blue star Twitter boy. So I better get to work on that. Hope you guys are having an outstanding first quarter in this year of 2023 and using AI, there's a lot of different concerns about AI out and about and oh, is ChatGPT, you know, they're going to become a singularity and take over the world and become like Skynet in the uh, Terminator movies. Not yet. Not yet. It doesn't look like that's uh, on par yet. Um, some of the guys that I like to follow are uh, uh, Chamath and uh, David Freeberg and David Sachs and uh, Jay, I can't remember the Jason, uh, whatever his name is. They're in the All In podcast and they they're very dialed into the tech world. Uh, each of them have, have been part of you know billion dollar exits with big tech companies and they're very plugged into ChatGPT. So I've been uh, researching and and doing a lot of reviews and it doesn't seem like we're at that point yet. So from my vantage point. If you're a business owner and you're trying to make progress, increase your market share, be more successful, grow your business, et cetera, et cetera, then utilizing some of these AI features can really accelerate the growth of your business. For example, uh, Ty is going to be here in just a minute, but I know we've created emails, we've created you know text messages, we've uh, had it create uh, different uh, you know, scripts for different uh, videos and training, all sorts of different things uh, that ChatGPT has been able to gather. And it just seems like it's a more effective version sometimes of basic search, where search might give you just a few page links. This gives you the actual needed information. I'd say 90, 95% of the time, it's very accurate. Now, if you get into really obscure, you know, things where there's not a lot of information and it's not really clear what the truth is regarding a matter, or if you get into political stuff, then ChatGPT probably is not going to be, you know, the the solution that you're looking for it to be. But if you're a business owner, if you're wanting to be able to ha- create sales scripts and emails and text messages to communicate better and more effectively with your client, even put together trainings for your team, then I find ChatGPT is a very effective thing. And if your kids are in school, it can be very effective at helping to organize ideas 
Again, you want to encourage them to do as much on their own as, as they can and use it more as a tool instead of just a copy and paste feature. So here's the top common, most common uh, eight financial misconceptions, perceptions, confusions out there for people in the financial space when it comes to money. So number one, number one misconception, you need a lot of money to start investing or to start a business. That's number one misconception. Number two, renting is throwing away money. This one is very interesting, especially with what's happening in the real estate markets right now across the country. Uh, this is going to be one of my favorites. Credit cards are are always bad. True or false? We're going to have a good discussion about that one. You need to be an expert to manage your finances. You can't do this. You need to have, you know, smart guy Joe who's going to manage uh, your investments for you, even though Joe probably has never actually created a, a ton of wealth for himself. He's just kind of selling products that make him a commission, right? Investing is too risky, so we shouldn't be doing investing. We should just save for a rainy day. True or false? And then high income equals financial security. Like that's where you get financial security. That's all you need to worry about is just, you know, that high income. And you need to be debt free to achieve financial security. A lot of people, you know, believe that to be true. They believe financial independence is having no debt. I'm going to share some stories where when I was quote unquote debt free, I was very far away from financially independent. So that is not always true. And I think most things uh, that you read online, whether it's uh, it's on an Inc. or an entrepreneur website or really any uh, news website, they'll have you know some sort of headline that captures your attention that's kind of that clickbait that, that gets you curious enough to check into it. And most of the time, those hooks, there's parts of it that are true and parts of it that are false. But you see a lot of gurus, a lot of experts out there who will Go all in and say something and state it like it's 100% fact on everything. And most things that we state are not 100% fact. That's just not how they work. All right. And the last one is you don't need an emergency fund if you have a good job. So good stuff here. Let's go ahead and jump in into the first here. You need a lot of money to start investing. According to ChatGPT, this is a common misconception that keeps many people from investing. In reality, you can start investing with as little as a few hundred dollars or even less, depending on the investment. So let's go ahead and unpack this and break this down. All right, you need a lot of money to start investing. Well, that used to be true. Uh, maybe 20, 30 years ago, if you just had a few hundred dollars or a few thousand dollars, you actually couldn't really create an investment account because all these investment accounts had minimums that might be $25,000. They might be $50,000, $100,000. And if you didn't have that lump sum amount to be able to put into an investment account in the stock market, in bonds, um, in, in a lot of these different investments, maybe a real estate syndicate, you couldn't actually get involved in investing. And what's happened with technology and the internet is it's become much more doable, Right. You know, you've got uh, right now we're in the era of uh, of the meme stocks and and those guys uh, in the Reddit that were uh, investing in GameStop and some of these other stocks, and they were doing it with small amounts of money, but they really pulled together their resources and they all kind of did the same thing and they put power back in the people. It was very fascinating, and they were able to push up GameStop and some of these other quote unquote meme stocks 
that uh, seemingly didn't have a lot of value, but they were able to systematically push that value up. And then a lot of these hedge funds that were trying to short them were getting, you know, hammered by it. But it was interesting. They were able to invest in some of these stocks and do it with just a few hundred dollars. There's uh, websites and fintechs out there like SoFi.com, uh, Robinhood. I know uh, Ty's uh, been involved with some of these uh, before. And you can start out with just as little as a few hundred dollars and start making investments and growing. And one of the cool things about really getting your money right and saving isn't just to save, but automatically saving to invest. And so a lot of smart people will, you know, all right, every paycheck, I'm going to move $100 over to you know, a trading account or, or some sort of investment account. And they're, they're systematically doing it. And it's small amounts, but it's growing over time. And so this is a misconception that you can't start investing unless you have a lot of money. True 20, 30 years ago, not true anymore in 2023. You can get started investing with very small amounts with a lot of different uh, trading accounts. Uh, Ty, I know you've uh, you know dug into this probably more than I have. What's been uh, your experience out there in the marketplace with how little you can get started to get used to investing, understanding it, and how easy is it to get started and set up some of these accounts? It's very easy, especially nowadays, Leo. And that that's something that you kind of need to know and understand yourself when it comes to investing and say, hey, I'm the type of person where if that money's in my bank account, I'm going to spend it. So I need to invest it before it hits my account. And that's something I like to think I'm actually pretty good about my finances. I keep really good track of them. I'm not going to spend. I'm good at saving. And I still do this. I have an account with Betterment. That's who I like to use for my you know small amounts that I just want them to invest it for me. So I use Betterment and every single paycheck, 10% of that check goes directly to Betterment before I ever see it. Um, my wife does something very similar with SoFi. SoFi has a great investing platform and you can set it up so that you're, you can put in a checking and routing so that when you get paid, a portion of the check goes right into SoFi and now it's invested for you. So it's just a matter of, I think the strategy is, is invest that money before you spend it, right? Yeah. All right. So, you know, you, I set up an account at SoFi or at Betterment or at Robinhood or, or one of these places, E-Trade. And so automatically put money in there. And now how do I actually make a decision about, you know, what am I going to invest in? What are the different things that you can invest in? You can invest in anything like uh -huh. places like SoFi. I mean, Betterment's a little bit different. They manage the money for you. So okay. you go into Betterment and say, I want based on projections, if I do $50 a week for the next 30 years with high risk, this is your risk. This is your reward. This is what you could lose. So it gives you a graph that shows you if I want 100% aggression, 80% aggression, it kind of changes how much you could have or how much you could lose, but they invest all the money for you. Whereas something like a Robinhood, you can do anything from cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, to buying shares of Tesla, to putting in just with the S&P 500. So there's a wide range there. My advice would be, you know, if you're brand new, you've only got a few bucks to invest. I wouldn't go crazy and, and go start buying these these high-risk stocks. I mean, I would probably get into more of a S&P 500, let that money start to slowly build until you have more and you can start to get more aggressive and afford to lose it a little bit. So, you know, you, you look back at a movie like The Wolf of Wall Street, right? In The Wolf of Wall Street, it was penny stocks, very high risk. They could go to the moon or you could literally lose all your money. And so a lot of the times you'll see people who are just getting started with investing and they're like, 
they're, they've got, uh, I want to invest to go to the moon and back, and, and I want to you know put $1,000 in and turn it into $100,000. And you see some of those stories out there online where someone legitimately did that. And then a lot of people get this misconception that they can easily go do that. And I think the majority of them end up losing their money. So I think that's a good point you're making. Instead of you trying to just pick the winner in a very high-risk stock that could go to zero, if you are invested in the S&P 500 or one of these plans that a betterment or someone is using, it's obviously going to be lower risk and you're putting more odds in your favor. You're not going to see 100% returns. What are some of the practical returns that you know you can see on average with some of these investments? Yeah, you know, like, like for me, Betterment, who I keep it at about a 90% aggression rate, I want them to be pretty aggressive with my yeah. money. It, it's different for everyone, but I've been averaging about 10 to 12% annually with Betterment, which is fantastic. With Robinhood, I try and do it on my own. And other than those years, cryptocurrency has done really well. I tend to hover around that 3 to 5%. So it's it's proven that the computers are smarter than me, Leo. But uh you know, it, it, it always, it, it depends. But like you said, I mean, if you've got a hundred bucks a week, you probably shouldn't be going out and, and doing options. You put you shouldn't be putting puts and calls on different stocks and whatnot, but let that money, if, if you just stay consistent and committed and let the computers, let the people who do this all day, put that money in the right spot for you, that, that will grow over time. Absolutely guys. Now, one of the things I would say that Let's look at investing in real estate versus investing in, you know, stocks and bonds and that type of thing. You probably can't get started maybe with a few hundred dollars in real estate unless you're doing maybe a seller finance deal or an, an option to lease where you can get a property. So there, even then, I guess there's opportunities where you could get into that uh, with with just a few thousand dollars and, and get started so what, what do you think uh, is real estate different where you actually do need more to invest successfully in real estate? I mean, it's definitely easier if you do. But like you said, there's things you can do with wholesaling. There's things you can yeah. do with seller financing, um, credit partners. I know that's something where my cousins yeah. come to me and said, Ty, I've got enough money to do some rehab work on a home, but I don't have the income to qualify for a mortgage what do you say you go get the mortgage and I'll fix the house and then we split the margins. I mean, there's ways to get in, involved exactly in real right. estate. You just have to get creative. Let, let's talk about wholesaling real quick uh, before we go to our next uh, financial misconception. But wholesaling is this idea where you find a property that's worth a lot. Maybe it's a fix and flip and that you need $25,000 worth of fix on it. And uh, once it's done, it's going to be worth like $125,000 more. Even in today's market, values are still holding strong in a lot of places like uh, Utah and, and Florida and, and some of these, California, I just uh, did a podcast with an investor in San Diego. So a lot of these places are staying strong. They aren't dipping much in the values. So if you find a good deal like that, you just get it under contract for maybe two, three, five thousand dollars $5,000. And then if you're t dialed into a real estate community, you're like, you go to someone like, like Ty or myself, like, hey, I've got this property. It's a great deal. I locked it up for five grand. And I know you have the wherewithal to close on it, and it's a good one. And I've got three other investors looking at it. Uh, you know, I will sell you this contract for fifteen thousand. And so you got it under grant, under uh, contract for five. You just, you know, basically netted fifteen thousand out of that, uh, or ten, whatever the difference is that you work out with that buyer. So that's that's pretty cool. Like you can literally do that within one one month, and you can stack this up and. In fact, we did uh, a podcast, uh, I think it was like a year and a half ago, and this guy started out doing wholesaling, and he literally made a million dollars 
just wholesaling. And then he, you know, expanded from there and he started doing Amazon businesses and he started, you know, doing bigger real estate investments, but he started off with wholesaling. So even real estate, stocks, bonds, all these things, you can get started being more creatively. It's just how hard do you want to work and what are you willing to commit to learn that game? Yeah, absolutely. There's so many ways to make money, especially like you said, small little investments. There, you, There's a lot of opportunities now too. You don't even have to be an accredited investor. You can put into different funds that their major focus is real estate. And so, yeah, do your homework on that for sure. But you do not have to have hundreds of thousands of dollars to start investing. There are these unique alternative investments. I was watching a podcast the other day, uh, one, one, of my, uh, one of my guys, it was PBD, I think, and he brought on this sponsor where usually to invest in high-end expensive art, which, by the way, ends up appreciating a lot of the time more than more than real estate, the stock market. Like if you're in the right art, it can do very well, but you generally need hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars. And so this group said, hey, you want to own a Van Gogh painting or one of these paintings that are, are super valuable, and you can get started with a small amount and own shares in it. And then as it's uh, bought and sold – you literally are earning those returns on that painting. So it's interesting, so many different ways where uh, investments that used to take massive amounts have been democratized and people can get started for much smaller amounts. I saw Logan Paul's actually doing that with sports cards. Um, I I played around with it a little bit where you own shares of a Michael Jordan card worth a million dollars. You can own a a piece of that. So as it sells for more money, you're, you're making that. Nice little difference. So it's, it's interesting. People are so creative with investing. And one of the best ways to define if it's a good investment, is it difficult to duplicate it, right? So if you have that property that's, uh, you know, 10 minutes away from Disney World or it's on the beach or it's, uh, you know, at Island Park by Jackson Hole, uh, you know, or one of these really uh, uh, heavy recreation tourist type places, well, you can't easily recreate that in the Actually, true with sports cards, right? Yeah. You have a valuable Michael Jordan or a Patrick Mahomes or a Tom Brady, you know, a rookie card or one of those uh, high graded cards that is, it's not going to be duplicated. You can't recreate it. Those are going to be extremely valuable over time. The difficulty in, in duplicating something makes it that much more valuable. I've got a funny story about that with, with sports cards, Leo, because my wife is always like, Ty, why do you keep the duplicates? Like, the, some seventh round draft pick that you got his rookie card and every pack because it's not worth anything. You've got a, a million of this random ass seventh round pick. Why are you keeping the duplicates? Well, guess what? Back in 2001 or 2000, uh, I can't remember exactly which year it was. My dad got a bunch of seventh round draft pick rookie cards of a man named Tom Brady. And he hung on to those duplicates and he since passed them on to me. And I was telling Marie, I said, that's why you hang on to the duplicates because you never know when the next, maybe it's Brock Purdy. Guess what? A lot of people might have thrown out Brock Purdy cards because he wasn't ever going to be anything. And then all of a sudden it's the next Tom Brady and they're worth thousands of dollars per card. So sports cards are funny. Sports cards. Not easily, you can't duplicate it. You can't go recreate those that that were printed 10, 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. So those are the types of things that you want to look for that are not easily duplicated. They're going to be valuable for years to come. All right, our next uh, financial misconception, according to our friends at ChatGPT, is renting is always throwing away money. And ChatGPT says this is a myth perpetuated by some people who believe that owning a home is always a better financial decision than renting. In reality, the decision to rent or buy a home depends on a variety of factors, including your financial situation, 
lifestyle and long-term goals. So that's interesting. Whenever you're talking about any type of investments, a lot of times it comes down to the timing. Like when did you buy it, right? So if you, you know, bought a a property in, you know, one of those markets that was appreciating like crazy, let's say maybe Boise, Idaho, and you bought uh, in, you know, March, April of 2022, well, you fast forward a year later, you might be underwater with that. But if you'd bought that same property two or three years ago, you probably have quite a bit of equity into it. So it always depends when you buy. But over the long run, are you going to lose money, you know, investing in a home versus renting? What do you think? No. No, I think in the long run, buying the home is always going to make more sense. But like you said, timing the market can be a difference of, hundreds of thousands of dollars, right? If you're getting a 6% versus a 3% and you projected that and you made the decision to rent for a year because you thought rates were going to drop, granted, you could always refinance. So it's not, I guess it, it's not resulting in hundreds of thousands of dollars. Where where this made sense to me, Leo, I, I know this is more talking about homes, but I immediately thought of my car situation, right? And and a lot of people say leasing is a terrible idea. Don't ever lease. And in some instances, that is true. But for someone that knows they constantly like to get new cars, leasing is a fantastic option. And if cars are semi undervalued right now, so in 2017, I leased my truck. And ultimately with a lease, when the day you lease it, they have to give you a dollar amount saying, hey, five years from right now, it's when that lease expires, time it's going to be worth X amount. And that's a contract. They have to sell, they, they give you the ability to buy the car or the truck at that amount five years later. Well, guess what? Between 2017 and 2023, the values of trucks went up astronomically. However, I had that contract. Yes, they so they had to depreciate my truck, which the first few years of an auto loan, you're pretty much just paying depreciation anyways. So they depreciate my truck. I got to go buy it a few weeks ago for 17500 it's valued at at thirty five thousand, but because of the lease, I essentially was just making de- I was making these interest only depreciation type payments, and now I get to buy it at a much lower rate and have equity in it. So I, I mean, I think renting a home, I have a harder time seeing that one, but I think leasing also as a business owner, there's a lot of tax advantages when you're leasing as opposed to making an auto loan payment. So, so like most things, sometimes it does, sometimes it does not. For the most part with real estate, if you're going to buy a home over the long run, you're going to win because over the long run, it's going to generally appreciate it at 5 6% per year. It might go up 20% like it did in 2021. It might come down you know, like it did in 2022 for the most part across the country. But over time, the stats show that you're going to win by staying. And I think that's kind of the biggest uh, takeaway here, whether you're investing in stocks, whether you're investing in real estate, if you're in it for the long haul, and you get in the right location with real estate or you get a, into an S&P 500 fund, like the S&P 500 goes up statistically 7 to 9% every year even, taking into account the bad years like 2008, 2009, et cetera. It's going to make you money over time. So, But if you have this short-term mindset, then you might be emotional. and Oh, it went down and you take it and you lock in those losses. And so it's the same thing with real estate. If you know you're going to move within the next one to two, three years, like that's a real possibility and you're not comfortable with renting out the home and 
managing it or you bought it at such a high uh, payment amount that even renting it out, you're not going to be able to cover the payment on it while you're gone, then that's that's a problem. That's where you can lose and that's where maybe it makes sense to rent versus buy. The other factor I think sometimes to take into account, some of these markets are so expensive, right? Like if you buy a property in, in Los Angeles that's uh, close to downtown, I mean, a thousand square feet might be well over a million dollars. Same thing in New York City, same thing in San Francisco. Like these are very expensive properties. And so if you buy them, you better be in it for the long haul. And oftentimes you can't rent them out enough to actually cover the payment because they're so expensive to buy. So over time you'll win, but if you're trying to move real quick, if something happens, then that's where you got to be, you're going to be in trouble. Yeah, that, that was exactly my main thought on this. I was trying to agree with ChatGPT and resonate with them. And I, I just think buying a home is always a great option. But if you're constantly moving, having to pay all of the fees to, to the loan companies, to the real estate agents, if you're not your own agent, that can get really, really expensive. So that's where I can see renting if you're in a job that means you're constantly moving and you can't afford to hang onto the home and rent it out. You know, I think we should share a little bit. I don't know if we talked about this much in one of our previous episodes, but we were sitting down with uh, this mortgage guy. We were looking at maybe uh, getting a, a larger office, and there was this uh, mortgage owner we were meeting with and really successful guy. I mean, I want to say he had like 2,000 five-star reviews online. I think we're, we're up to 500 on Google and, and another six 700 for maybe 1,000 total, but he he had 2000 on Google alone. So he was absolutely killing it back in yeah. the day, but things have slowed down significantly and he's had to pull back 90% of his workforce. So we were looking at that, but he was talking to us about mortgages and uh, how the 30 year fixed mortgage is the worst investment that you can ever take because the first five, the average person he was saying stays in their home about five years. So if you stay in your home for about five years and you know you're going to move, you're going to refinance. The problem with the 30 year loan is for those first five years, the majority of your payments are going up to interest. Yeah. And so you're not paying the mortgage down hardly at all. And then you're moving every five years. And if you had gotten a, what he called a first lien, like home equity line of credit where the entire mortgage is a home equity line of credit, you'd actually have paid a lot more towards principal with that same payment amount. And you had have access up to 90% of the value in case you ever had a really good investment or business opportunity. So a really unique, uh, you know, mortgage uh, product strategy there. What, what were your thoughts with that? Uh? Yeah, when I, I came into the office a little bit later, I was talking to Marie. So I came in a little bit later, and I heard him saying, all you're required to do is interest payments. And I'm like, is he pitching us on an interest-only loan right now or what's going on? But then I understood the whole concept of your interest is based on your average daily, but you're, it's charged based on your average daily balance. So if you have a lot of savings or you run a business where there's a lot of cash flow coming in and then it goes out, you can put it all in that account. So instead of paying interest on $500,000, say you had 200000 sitting in there for a few days, on those few days, it's basing it off of 300000 So it it made sense, or with investment properties where there's a lot of cash flow coming in, and then you pay property managers, you pay the mortgage, you pay this, you pay that. You can I, I finally started to see how you could save a lot of money. You can always access the additional capital, too, and loan that money out. So for an entrepreneur, I thought that was, I think he was telling me it's called, he calls it the all-in-one loan, yeah, which I thought was, was awesome. Yeah, exactly. If you're a small business owner, if you're an entrepreneur, and you understand that you can 
you know, be paying five or six percent on that mortgage, but I know that I've got this other deal here where I can make 15, 20, 30 percent over the same period of time. Well, that simple arbitrage and arbitrage being I'm, I'm taking this money, I'm paying five percent here, but I'm making 20 percent or 50 percent over here. Well, that's that makes sense all day and twice on Sunday. And so if you have those opportunities, that's the type of loan that can work for you. If you don't, then it's probably not a good idea for you. All right. The next uh, financial misconception was credit cards are always bad. Well, it's true that credit card debt can be a major financial burden. Credit cards themselves are not inherently bad. When used responsibly, credit cards can help you build credit and earn rewards. And if you use them for some sort of side hustle or business launch, then it can work out very well. And it seems like every every single week I share the same uh, story here about Kevin Plank, $40,000 in credit cards. Under Armour becomes a multi-billion dollar company. Uh, Russell Brunson did that with ClickFunnels. He said he had his Amex and he used that uh, to fuel ClickFunnels. Same thing, multi-billion dollar company. Now we used it uh, for our company, which is now an eight-figure company, $65,000 in credit cards. And uh, one of our cards, we started out with a $10,000 limit, now has a $102,000 limit. But most importantly, I think a lot of people still don't understand how you should strategically use credit cards as a business owner and as an individual. What are some of those tactics, Ty, that they really should consider utilizing in what we call smart money strategies? Yeah, I mean, the the only way credit cards are bad is if you're undisciplined, right? If you're disciplined and using credit cards correctly, it's one of the only places you're literally getting free money. Um, Almost every credit card out there, major credit card out there, is going to give you anywhere from 1% to 4% cash back on absolutely every purchase you make. However, if you really dive into it and say, okay, well, this quarter I get 4% back on fuel. Next quarter I get 4% back on Amazon. So you really got to be looking at your card specifically. They come with insurance. Some of them will even insure like your phone. Right. You don't realize that, but there's so many different things that come with these credit cards. And in all reality, the only way a credit card's bad is if you're carrying high balances and paying high interest and you can't afford to make the payments. But if you're using them appropriately, credit cards are the best financial resource that we have in this generation, in my opinion. No question, especially for getting your business off the ground. I mean, obviously, we, we help thousands of business owners. Some of them qualify for loans. A very, very small percentage will qualify for SBA and less than one, I mean, just maybe a tenth of 1% might actually get venture capital someday. So 95% of businesses, like, you're going to get launched with either some sort of five-year personal loan where you're using part of it to pay down some credit cards and using the rest to maybe launch a business, and or you're utilizing actually business and, and other credit card strategies, and you stack those up, and you can use those to launch your business just like Kevin Plank did, just like we did, just like Russell Brunson did. And so that being the case, it's about the return on investment. And the cards that we get clients will be 0% interest up to 18 to 20 month, 21 months. So you have time to generate a return on that money. If you take out $50,000 and you don't have to pay any interest for 12 months and you can make 200% on that money, that's a big win. And that's the smart way to use credit. And then after you're building and growing that business, if you have $100,000 in expenses for your business every month and you make 2% cash back on that, that's an extra $2,000, $24,000 in free money that's coming back to you. You can take your family on a vacation. You can invest that uh, in your betterment account. I mean, there's so many different things you can do. You can buy a real estate property with that additional money. And that's just free money for swiping that card to pay with expenses that you would have used the card to pay for anyway. Now, the key is 
if you get $24,000 in cash back rewards, but you hold a balance and you pay $24,000 in interest, well, that doesn't really you know help you that much, right? It's kind of sixes. But if you pay off your balance and really you have about almost 45 to 60 days to pay off the balance before you actually charge the interest, and you'll see that when you log in, it'll show you know balance uh, left from the previous billing statement. As long as you pay that off, then you will generally, in most cases, pay no interest. And now you're utilizing, you got almost have like a 30 to 45 day window before the payments due before you get interest tacked on. So it's almost free money. As long as you pay that balance down to zero, you know, at the end of every month, you're not paying any interest. And now you've generated thousands of dollars in free cashback rewards that you can use however you want. You can do this as a business owner. You can also do it as a family. And so in our family, we literally use like one or two cards for all of our personal purchases, especially travel, which sometimes is 4 or 5% back. And you generate all this cash back individually as a family. And that's kind of the difference, I think, between the wealthy. The wealthy use debt as a tool, as a strategy, as something that generates income for them. And most consumers do not. And so it's that discipline, but a lot of it's just education too. Yeah, that, and I love what you say there when you talk about ROI, the return on your investment. Actually, we would call it the ROL, the return on the loan, a return on the line of credit, because a perfect example of, say I don't have $10,000 in my bank account, but someone brings me an opportunity, says, Ty, if you give me $10,000 today, I'm going to close on this property and I'll be able to pay you $20,000 in three months. And I put that on a credit card. Even if that credit card is at a 25% APR, all I have to do is cover the minimum monthly payment, 2 to 3% of my balance, so 2 to 3% of $10,000 for the next 2 to 3 months, and now that $10,000 pays back as $20,000, that's a phenomenal ROL. Use a credit for, card for that all day, every day, right? That's what people don't understand, though. As long as you can maintain that minimum monthly payment until you get that return, that is a very, very sound financial and business decision there. It is. And sometimes we'll find a business owner who has a lower credit score, a 600 FICO, and the very best loan they qualify for might be a $50,000 loan, and they have to pay it back in a year at 30, 25, 30% interest, but they don't care because they know their business. If I put 50000 into inventory, e-commerce, whatever business it is, and they can bring in you know, $200,000, well, I don't even care. I'll pay that interest. I'm making 200% you know, minus a 25% uh, interest rate, I'm making 175% of money I would not have made without utilizing that debt strategy, that ROL strategy. And so again, uh, it depends on what you're doing, who you are. But if you think as a business owner, if you think as an entrepreneur and you use debt as a tool, that's why the wealthy do have debt, right? They don't, they know if I pay cash for that apartment building, my return is much, much smaller versus if I buy or apartment buildings with the same amount of cash putting 25% down, I'm going to probably make uh, you know, three or four times higher return because I'm using leverage to control those properties and doing it in a smart way. And at the end of the day, learning how to use leverage in your business as an investor, as uh, someone who wants to get their money right, there's no more powerful concept for you to learn. All right, our next topic here, according to the financial misconceptions, according to our friends at ChatGPT, are you need to be an expert to manage your finances. While it's true that financial management can be complex, 
You don't need to be an expert to manage your finances effectively. There are many resources available, such as online tools and financial advisors that can help you make informed decisions. One of the curious things about this is if you've ever followed like hedge funds, and there are all these big hedge funds that literally have billions and billions of dollars of people's money that they are managing, and the vast majority of them do not get better results than the S&P 500. So legitimately, you don't have to be a rocket scientist. You don't have to have gone to Wharton Business School or Harvard Business School to learn to become a successful investment banker. You can legitimately just say, hey, I'm just going to open a SoFi account. I want to track the S&P 500 100%. And 90% of the time, you're going to outpace 90% of the hedge funds out there and be successful over the long run. So Boy, technology literally has made it so that anybody who can just be smart and disciplined can be successful as an investor. Yeah, I feel like I'm using this word a lot today, Leo. But again, it just comes down to being disciplined, just like credit cards. Credit cards are only bad if you're not disciplined. Uh, Financial management, it's only tricky if you're not disciplined. We live in a time that we have so many resources, right? Go to myfigures.com and create your account and you can manage your finances right there. There are a lot of different ways that you can manage your finances today. If you feel like you struggle with it, chances are you're probably just lazy. I, I, I know I'm going to get some hate in the comments for that, but if you're not managing your finances, it's because you're lazy because there are so many solutions and they're not even expensive anymore, right? You can go to my figures for 10 bucks a month and now you're managing your finances and you have budgets and you have tools and you have net worth tracking, right? You can set financial goals. If you're not doing it, it's on you. Ty, you know what? Sometimes I see people are like, Hey, I can't, uh, I can't afford this, uh, this subscription to this money tool, it's like $20, $30 a month at myfigures.com. And that same person on Friday night, Friday night, they're at the club, they're throwing hundreds of dollars down, spending a fortune on alcohol and other stuff that is not generating any type of return. And so there's this this misperception. The, one of the biggest misconceptions is that of education, that I can go take out you know $40,000 as the average student loan debt that someone graduates from college with, So it's okay for me to go take out $40,000 in student loans and get a degree that generally is not going to generate a return. And I could have, if I had started a business and invested that same money in educational, you know, self-education products about money, about being disciplined, about budgeting, about creating an income, a business, and understanding all the things that successful entrepreneurs do. If I'd have done that same thing, that would have been a much smarter investment. And it's the same idea with, well, I can't afford this, but on the weekends I can go blow my paycheck on whatever the hell it is, not generate any type of return, but I can't invest in myself because I have to blow my money on other stuff. And that's the mistake that 80% of the population make and why 80% will never you know, create the wealth, the life that they want to. But it starts with making a commitment to become disciplined, you have to become educated. And to become educated, you have to spend time at it and and learn these skills. And again, we talk about this. These are not taught in school. And so one of the quickest ways to get there is to find a mentor, somebody who understands it. And you don't even have to find a mentor that you speak with in person. You can start going on YouTube and looking these things up. Find someone who's an expert who's dedicated their life to helping people on a certain topic and go all in with that person, whether it's their YouTube channel, their podcast, their products. Uh, I mean, we've had people, you know, in our programs that uh, went all in. I think of guys uh, like Damon and Francois and others that have literally built, uh, you know, massively successful uh, businesses 
just following stuff that we learned from other people who were more successful than us. And that's the straight line to success, you know, right there. And so the next uh, financial misconception is investing is too risky or let's let's turn it to this. Starting a business is too risky. And so it says, while all investments carry some degree of risk, so so do starting businesses, investing is not inherently risky. In fact, not investing can be more risky in the long run as inflation can erode the value of your savings over time. And I would say the same thing about not starting some kind of business in the long run will be more expensive for a lot of different reasons. What do you think about that? That it's interesting when they put it like that, not investing can be just as, if not more risky, because when you break it down, that individual that's been hiding cash under the mattress for the last five years, what's their five year return looking like right now? Right? Maybe negative negative because seven percent. Yeah. It's been it was up to nine percent last year. It's still six and a half percent is where inflation is. So the value of your money has gone down nine percent last year and six percent so far this year. So even if you put that in a very, very, very safe bond or whatever you wanted to put that in, say it only made you two percent, putting it in that bond as opposed to hiding it in your mattress is actually a net gain of about nine percent. Right, because that money literally lost its value just sitting there. So it's, again, an important concept to understand. Yes, saving is good, but if you can put that savings into something that will get you even 2 3 4 5%, even just to offset the inflation, that way your money isn't losing money while it's just sitting there. It's so true. And so sometimes, you know, you have to jump through some hoops to invest. And, well, let's, let's talk about what we were talking before about uh, investing in buying a home and whether it makes sense to rent. And obviously, every situation is different. But I mean, uh, you know, I think of the hoops I had to jump through to actually uh, qualify to buy our home uh, that we moved into. Boy, it's been almost six years. Uh, In 2017, we moved into that property. And I literally, you know, had to get, uh, I got a loan, I paid down, paid off my car, and then I had to get a business loan. And then I had to like, I was literally moving money all these different places, robbing Peter to pay, pay Paul to get my down payment money. I had some of it saved up, but I, I needed to borrow here and I needed my debt to income. So I'm doing all this crazy stuff. I'm like, oh, I hope this is worth it. And I came up with the down payment, uh, finally closed on the house uh, just in time. And that same property now has gone from we bought it for about six fifteen, and it was valued at over a million dollars last year. And so you look at how much equity and growth that property's had over the six year period. And even though it was a nightmare to buy it, you know the return has been substantial. And then you know you start you duplicate that, right? What if I could buy another property and rent that out? What if I could buy a and b short-term rental property? What if I could invest in some apartment buildings? What if, you know, like uh, we, we've got our friend Jake that goes out and finds other deals and you just put that money in there and it's a risk. But when you are working with experts and people who have a system, then your odds for success are so much higher. And so that's what we've done with real estate. That's what you can do with business. That's what you can do with all these different investments. But it's it's really about just getting in the game. And if you don't, one of the saddest things you'll see is somebody who went through a tough time, let's say 08, 08, 09, had to file for bankruptcy, lost their house, and then 10, 12 years later, they're in the same position. And this is going to be uh, super interesting because one of the other uh, financial misconceptions is you must be debt-free to achieve financial security. 
Well, I can tell you, Ty, after 08, 09, when I did go through bankruptcy, I did fail after building a business and, and investing in real estate. The market turned. Times were tough. I'd made bad decisions, did go bankrupt. And after bankruptcy, well, guess what? I had no debt. Cool. So debt-free does not mean financial security. In fact, you could even have your house paid off. But if you don't have any income, right, and a lot of people retire, they pay their house off, but then they actually don't have any income. So if you don't have any income and all you're counting on is Social Security or a small 401k, you're probably in trouble. You've got to have income streams coming in. So being debt-free does not necessarily mean you're financially secure. And most billionaires have massive amounts of debt invested in assets. So it's not, I didn't take out debt for, you know, a vacation, for clothes. I didn't uh, take out debt to get an expensive car that actually doesn't make me any money, you know, unless I have it on Turo, which that's another another factor, right? Yeah. But billionaires are invested in real estate. They might have billions of dollars in loans like a Donald Trump does, and they generate a lot of cash, don't pay any taxes on that cash because they get to depreciate all of that that real estate that they own. And that's why the rich get richer because debt, as long as it's paying for itself and growing, is making you money. Exactly. That that one was was interesting, the the whole debt concept, because like you just said, the wealthiest people in the world still leverage debt and leverage debt nonstop because they understand the tax advantages, they understand the ROL on that debt. So it, debt is not a bad thing. Debt is a bad thing. And an, an investment becomes too risky if there's no proof of concept, right? Or if if you feel like your investing strategy is you're just throwing mud at the wall to see what sticks, you should probably go to something like a Betterment where they invest that money for you. If your investment strategy is, oh, I love playing the Xbox, so I'm going to invest in Microsoft. Yeah, you should probably give your money to Betterment and let them invest that money for you until you learn how to do your own research and make your own decisions and read the news and stay current with uh, or stay up to date with current events. That's, I mean, that's what investing takes to do that confidently. You need to do the homework and do the research. But thankfully, there's a lot of resources out there like Betterment where you don't have to have hundreds of thousands of dollars to go to a fund manager and let them take that for you. You can invest $50 a week, $20 a week, and Betterment will put that in what they fill and what their algorithms and what their computer decides is the best option for you. Exactly right. So debt-free does not mean financial security, financial independence. Debt-free can be a great thing if you do have businesses and real estate and investments that are growing well beyond. And as a consequence, you're like, well, I might as well pay my house off because I've got all this money growing. But if you just focus on only paying your house off, but you don't actually have cash flow investments in businesses, in real estate, in the stock market that are growing, then it's going to be very difficult to create financial independence. You might feel good about having your house paid off, but you might not be able to travel at all. You might not be able to do a lot of things. You might not be able to invest in experiences for your family because you just don't have income. You just And that's what most people do, right? Most people go in what's called the slow lane where, you know, it's go to college, get the student loans, get a, a safe job that's not safe and you can still get fired anytime, you know, and then don't start that business, invest in your 401k, don't invest in real estate or other cash flow businesses, and then hope that when you're 65 years old, and you're old and on your deathbed that you have enough money saved up, you just paid your house off, 
And now you have no additional income and people are going to live a lot longer now. So you might live to 85, 90 years old and you will outlive your savings, outlove your small retirement account, go and you lived a life that wasn't your dream life. And that's what, that's the, that's the lie that most of us are taught. Instead, if you start investing and finding mentors and programs, how can I get my money right? How can I save not to save or put in a 401k, but to invest. And it's fine. Yeah, have some of that in stocks. But should I look at, at real estate as a better investment? Should I look at starting a business where there's two tax systems in this country, right? There's one for business owners, and there's one for employees. And so the minute you join the business owner tax system, but by the way, you can still be an employee over here for your company and have another business, another side hustle, and you're going to be in that business owner camp and pay a lot less in taxes. And especially if you can invest in real estate, one of the things about stocks is it doesn't have depreciation. There's no tax benefits investing in stocks. But if you invest in real estate, there's depreciation. There are all these benefits that you get from a tax point of view. But when you join that business owner segment of the tax system, you're able to have a lot more success, pay a lot less in taxes because the government knows you're creating jobs, you're making investments. And that's the power of becoming a business owner and understanding that guys. So that's uh, the debt free idea. We've got two left here from our friends at chat, uh, chat GPT. The next financial misconception is high income equals financial security. While a high income can certainly make it easier to achieve financial security, it's not a guarantee. You know, it was a, it was a while ago, Ty, I met with this couple, and I think I was doing like a home loan refinance for him. This is back in 2005. The guy was making 150000 a year. His wife was making fifty. So together they were making $200,000 a year. They should be doing fine, right? Yeah. They're in Utah. The that cost was of living. That was 05. So that oh. was even less, right? Inflation yeah. hadn't reduced the value so much. So they're making two hundred grand a year. And I looked at their credit report, and they had $50,000 in credit card debt. And it wasn't used for a business. It was used, I don't know what it was. Maybe there was a, there was a few trips to the mall, too many there. There was yeah. a, a lot of furnishings and they were always just buying you know things that didn't actually weren't actually assets that made them money right they weren't taking out debt at five percent or ten percent and making fifty percent on it that wasn't what they were doing and so they literally were living paycheck to paycheck they had only five thousand dollars saved up in their savings account and they're making 200 grand a year living paycheck to paycheck and that's when i realized this is true you can there can be people who make a million dollars a year and they spend it all. I think, uh, did, you ever, did you ever watch Sex in the City? Probably not, right? No. Yeah, my wife used to watch it, so sometimes I would watch an episode here and there. <laughs> and Sarah Jessica Parker, the main character, made a lot of money in her different businesses. And the and it fast forward to like 10 years later, and she had no assets. She didn't own any real estate. She didn't invest anything. She had spent literally millions of dollars on clothes and parties and travel and she had nothing with all that money, all that income, because she was always trying to keep up with whoever the Joneses were in, in her area of New York City. And that happens to a lot of people as they make more, they spend more, but they don't invest more. Exactly. And a lot of the problems with this, too, is they get locked into some of these expenses, right? I, I agree with you, Leo. Some of the highest earners that I, I know, the highest earning individuals I know are also the brokest people that I know. 
because they're spending every single dollar that they make. And not only that, but they're locking themselves into long-term leases, long-term auto loans, long-term mortgages, and they're professional athletes. So guess what? You get hurt, you lose the contract, you don't, uh, or they're summer sales reps where they're making great money six months out of the year. And then they come home and realize, oh my gosh, that, uh, that income goes away, but that rental contract doesn't. And I still have to keep paying that. And so again, it comes back to the word and, and I'm going to, I dare say that all of these financial health in general comes down to discipline, right? Same exact thing here. High income equals financial security. That's not true. High income with good financial discipline would equal financial security. So Ty, I think that brings up the question, how do you, you know, build up more discipline in your life? Because there's discipline in a lot of different areas of your life, but how do you actually, and I've got some ideas about this, but what do you think are some of the best ways to increase your financial discipline, your discipline in general, because to succeed in almost every area of life, it takes some form of discipline. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it comes down to accountability, right? If you want to be better at being disciplined, then you need to start holding yourself accountable. And the way you hold yourself accountable is you you push yourself, you set goals, you break those goals down into micro goals, and then you hold yourself accountable to achieving those goals. And before you know it, you're going to be a disciplined individual. That That's what it comes down to. And you track it, right? If you're not having a money date every single week with you, with your spouse, with your money, if you're not going through your money and you don't know where you stand, you don't know where your credit's at, you don't know where your debt's at, you don't know where your investments are at, you don't know where your business is at. And unfortunately, I think 70, 80% of business owners don't actually know if they're profitable, where their profitability is at. And so that's why we're building this My Figures app and we're documenting this process and we're building out this Clever cla- uh, Cash Flow tool, which was what a great name you came up with, <laughs> Clever Cash Flow, that's going to help business owners manage their cash flow and know that they're actually making money. And, and we're going to use the Clever Cash Flow tool for business owners' personal finances. Are you making more than you're spending? If not, that's a problem. Now, in this country, we have a problem with our government, right? Our government spends a hell of a lot more than it brings in, and yet it keeps on increasing you know, tax revenue and tax uh, interest, etc. But we spend more than we bring in, and we cannot do that as entrepreneurs. We cannot do that as uh, as parents, as people who are responsible for others. We've got to spend less than we make. We've got to be you know profitable and grow that net worth, and it takes discipline. One of the ways that you can build discipline, I think, is by creating a schedule and sticking to it. A lot of the times I look at my kids and they struggle with schedules. They struggle at getting up when when they have to. They struggle at getting their homework done when they need to get it done. And so stick building out a schedule and sticking to it, that will build discipline. Tracking things will yeah. build discipline. If you're not tracking your net worth in the My Figures app, then your odds of success go down. If you're not tracking your business profitability, you're going down. If you're not tracking your health, if you're not tracking, well, I wanted to, you know, get in better shape this year. Well, have you been doing your workouts every week? Have you been eating better? Have you been documenting it and writing it down? If you don't track those things, you're never going to improve in it. So it begins by deliberately taking action in your calendar, building out a system that you're going to follow through and a schedule. If you do that, now you're becoming more disciplined and now you start to feel stronger. And that's one of the reasons why I did the 75 Heart Challenge uh two years ago and and i've done done some of the uh, additional uh, phases of that but it 
makes you be disciplined and you have to do two workouts a day and you have to eat right for a day and you don't have to go to that extreme but you have to be able to set goals work towards them and be disciplined and track them and then probably the biggest thing you have to not lie to yourself Ty. that's hard for a lot of us we've all taken turns lying to ourselves what have you been able to do to succeed in so many areas of your life to where you can be accountable? Because you can be disciplined, but if you're lying to yourself about your discipline, then you also have to be accountable. Yeah, I, when you really break it down, it seems like if, if you're someone that lacks discipline, I think one, a, a really good place to start is you've got to give yourself some wins, right? There's got to be some of that initial self-belief. And so if it's someone that it's like, hey, I've been lying to myself. Genet- I have good genetics, so my body looks okay, but realistically, I haven't worked out in two years. You probably shouldn't start the 75 hard day one, right? That, that may not be the best commitment to make because you're likely setting yourself up, self up for failure, but commit to, I'm going to go to the gym, and I'm just going to walk for the first week for 30 minutes, two or three times a week. Give yourself some of those wins so that you can generate that self-belief, and as you generate that self-belief, you can continue to push yourself harder and harder to where, guess what? You do gain some discipline. You do gain some accountability. You do believe that when you put something on your calendar, you're going to do it. That's mine right there. Like you said, put it in a calendar. I have to take an antibiotic four times a day right now, and I know that if it's not on an alarm, I won't take it. So I set an alarm four times a day that tells me I'm going to take it because that's how I know myself and how I'll be accountable. That was good timing. Good timing. Yeah, set those <laughs> alarms, put it You're in your good, calendar. Jillian, it wasn't you. <laughs> if it's not in your calendar, it's not going to happen. And it doesn't matter. You just have to start, right? If you start where you have no net worth or you do have these debts, okay, great. My goal is I want to pay off this credit card by in the next two to three months. I'm going to start this side hustle so I can make extra money to do it and you work towards it. I want to get in better health so for the, the next week, I'm going to try and avoid eating white breads, and I'm going to try and avoid eating desserts and sugars. I'm going to focus on that one week. And then you, you go two weeks, and you start to build strength. And what happens is when we create evidence that we can succeed, then that you know enforces that we can, that we can make progress. And so you start with these little wins. Whatever the little wins are, you document them. Oh, cool, I saved $100 on this paycheck, I haven't done that in a while. I've been actually spending more. And my next goal is to save $125 on the next because I'm going to make do this extra thing. Talk to your, if you don't have, if you don't work somewhere where you can actually be an entrepreneur and come up with ideas, then you need to look for those opportunities. Obviously, a lot of you are, you know, in this audience are business owners. And so how can you increase your income as a business owner? How can you be more productive, more profitable? And at the end of the day, it's not always working the 80-hour weeks, but it's getting more out of leverage. And so as a business owner, you have to be able to leverage your time with systems, with processes, with a team, and with activities that can be leveraged. Media is one way to do that. With social media, you can also leverage software, right? If you're in any type of software business or utilize software to become more effective in your business and you have automated texts and emails and things that go out, like these are all tactics that are going to make you more successful as a business owner. The last financial misconception is you don't need an emergency fund if you have you know, a successful business or a good job. And while having a steady income can certainly make it easier to weather financial emergencies, it's still important to have an emergency fund, unexpected expenses, 
can arise at any time, and having an emergency fund can help you avoid going into debt to cover them. So you don't need an emergency if you're making a lot of money, kind of an obvious misconception there, but what, what's your uh, reaction to that? My reaction to that is, yes, I agree. I think everybody should have an emergency fund because things happen that are out of our control. You never know when someone's going to get hurt. You never know if you're going to get sued because someone slipped on ice in your driveway, right? There's a lot of things that you may need some cash while you're waiting on insurance money, right? There's a lot of things that could happen. My only advice on that, Leo, was your emergency fund doesn't need to be cash in a shoebox that's sitting under your bed. A lot of people think that's the emergency fund. Your emergency fund can be money sitting in the S&P 500. Your emergency fund can be money that's sitting there with uh, betterment. Maybe don't have it in an IRA or a 401k where it's going to take a little while to get it out. Yes. But nowadays, I mean, if I've got money with betterment and I need to access it, I can get it in a day or two. Cash accessibility is super important. But yeah, it shouldn't just be sitting there making nothing. It should be working for you. If you work for your money forever, then you'll never create financial independence, says Uncle Warren Buffett. If you learn to make money while you sleep and make your money work for you, then the sky is the limit. And so super important to understand that. The other thing I would add to that is don't just save to have that emergency fund. Make sure you're saving to invest. The name of the game is to increase your net worth, and you do that by buying assets. One of the coolest things uh, that one of my kids did is Marcus just recently finished reading Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And he doesn't love like reading them, the actual book. He likes to listen to it yeah. on Audible, and then I'll have him give me a book report. And if he does a good job and he learns a lot and he presents it well, then I will pay him money because now I know he's investing in himself, so it motivates him. It's a win-win. And as he was giving the lessons he learned from this book, he just learned so much about investing to learn and then taking action. So in this uh, example was a story where basically uh, these two kids came to work for Rich Dad, uh, um, Robert Kiyosaki, who's the author, and his friend went and worked for his friend's dad, and his dad didn't pay them any money. This is uh, Robert Kiyosaki's rich dad. Didn't pay him any money, but he taught him different business principles while they were working. And then they created this cute little business where they're like, hey, kids want to be able to read all these comic books. This is back, I think, in the 80s or 70s or something. And so we're going to bring all these comic books together, and you pay a fee to be part of our club, and now you can access all of these comic books in one place. And so they would do this after school, and they were making all sorts of profits and money because they learned business concepts and investing um, even though they weren't getting paid. So most people will, oh, I'm not going to go do, do this unless you pay me. And that guy who one day wants to own his McDonald's and is like, I'll get paid minimum wage so I can learn how this system works and eventually I'll own my own McDonald's or whatever the franchise or business is, like having that mindset is one of the biggest things you can do to succeed. So wherever you're at, go into it investing in, I'm investing to learn and then I'm going to grow and implement what I learn even though I might not make a lot of money at the beginning. And most of us have this you know, we don't have delayed gratification. We just want immediate, you know, I, I want to be able to order my food and have DoorDash bring it immediately. And yeah. we don't understand that these things take time and investing takes time. And so ultimately, it's be disciplined, understand it's a an event, not a process. It will take time. And if you do that, success can be yours. And the biggest regrets you'll have at the end of the day 
is that you didn't take those actions. It's not always the things we did. It's the things we didn't do that people regret on their deathbed. Amen. Leo, life's too short to sit and feel sorry for ourselves. It's time to, to take action. All right, guys. Get your money right, and we will see you Thursday for our next episode. Thank you for joining us on the Go Figure podcast. If you learned something that will help your business or family, take 30 seconds and give us a five-star. If we added value to your day, then share the show with someone who wants to get their money right and be sure to subscribe to the Seven Figures Funding YouTube channel. If you're a business owner and a parent committed to getting your money right for your family, then check out the MyFigures.com money app with a free 30-day trial to manage your money, track your net worth, and build a profit-first business through our fintech platform. God bless, and we'll see you next time on the Go Figure podcast.